0: Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, writer and film historian Beverly Gray, author of previous books on Ron Howard and Roger Corman. Her latest biography is the story of a movie, Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, How the Graduate Became the Touchstone of a Generation, published by Algonquin Books in 2017. The story of how she arrived at this subject is a lesson for all writers.
1: Back in around 2007, I had the idea of talking about the films of the year 1967, which was a very exciting time for the motion picture industry and certainly was an exciting time if you were young and because there was a lot of interesting political stuff happening. Mm-hmm. So, the films of that particular year, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, all of those were Oscar nominees along with, believe it or not, 20th Century Fox's elephantine production of Dr. Doolittle starring Rex Harrison. So those are the five nominees for Oscar. For young people like me who loved movies, it was a very exciting time because these were movies, aside from Dr. Doolittle, that seemed to confront what was going on in our culture. Because, of course, it was the time of political assassinations. It was the time of the civil rights movement turning bloody. It was the time of the Vietnam War and the rise of student resistance to the draft and to the war. And somehow these films seemed to contain some of the emotion and some of the excitement of that. So I was all set to write this book, had a contract to write the book. And in the six months it took to wrangle out the terms of the contract and for me to put my Jane Hancock on the contract – another book came out on exactly that subject. It was a good book, it was a big book, it got great reviews, and there I was. So tried to shift the book around, make it a different kind of a production, and somehow, eventually, and sadly, it didn't happen. So there I was, left high and dry, having done a lot of good research, gotten a lot of good ideas, and nothing. So, after several years, and I was thinking of how I would like to get up someday and talk about this and call it fiasco and how I survived it. Uh, Here you are. (laughs) Right. So I think I can do that now. Uh, And instead of calling it Fiasco, I'm calling it by the name of my new book, Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, How the Graduate Became the Touchstone of a Generation.
0: So you decided over a course of time to
1: zero in on that film specifically. And, you know, I got a lot happier because instead of trying to cover a great swath of history and a great many ideas... I was able to focus in on a movie, and maybe a slightly unexpected movie, because it wasn't, if you looked at it exactly, about any of those things that I just mentioned. It certainly was not about the Vietnam War. It was not about civil rights. It was about sort of affluent people, but there was a malaise about it. There was that sense of discomfort amongst the youth as seen in that movie, who couldn't exactly express what was bothering them, but were somehow disaffected from the society that they lived in. And you write in the book about remembering what you felt when you saw it, which is so great. Right. It became very personal to me. I used myself in that book as a kind of reflector of that kind of nice, well-behaved young person as I was. I was not sort of the screaming radical out in the streets getting dragged off to jail. I was the good girl, but I was still feeling hemmed in, in my case, by parental expectations. That's the part of the movie that I truly identified with. But I think if you talk to other people from that era, they identify in all kinds of ways. If it's sex, if it's love, some young women were seeing in it a warning about what happened if you conformed to the notions of domesticity, as Mrs. Robinson did, and then found herself in a loveless marriage, there were a lot of people feeling a lot of things strongly. And so even though Benjamin Braddock floating around on a raft in his parents' backyard is not exactly realistic in an era where the laws are being changed, as they were in 1967, so that young men after four years of college couldn't lounge around, they were going to be draft fodder, Uh, So it's very different. But that anxiety, that restlessness, that was something that people in my era recognized, which is why people, it wasn't simply that they saw the movie once. They saw it, and they saw it, and they saw it. And it was a hit, a surprise hit. It was a huge hit. No, it it was not a big Hollywood production. It was really made by people who were pretty much outside the Hollywood establishment. Kind of a middle-of-the-road budget, but the stars were not big stars. The number one star of the film, and Bancroft had won an Oscar for a very, very different role in The Miracle Worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was the closest thing they had to a box office draw. But Dustin Hoffman was unknown. The other people were unknown. But... Even here, to give you an example, in spring of 1968 when Columbia University shut down with a very, very passionate student strike and students barricaded themselves inside buildings for a number of days. But some of them would sneak out in the middle of the night, past their own barricades to go see The Graduate and then come back because somehow that movie spoke to them.
0: And so you charged yourself with capturing that for those of us who were a little bit behind that. Right. And how did you set about doing that besides your own personal impressions and recollections? I had talked over the years to a good many people from all
1: walks of life. I tried to cut as, as broad a swath as I possibly could and got some really interesting stories from some very unexpected folks. For example, there was a... Man, He was a young Chinese man at that time from Mesa, Arizona, a a large family in a small town uh, subject to cultural pressures and discrimination. Uh, His father and his mother were both immigrants, uh, feeling, because he was old enough to remember World War II when Asian faces were suspect, even if you were Chinese rather than Japanese, and... He was one of the youngest children in that family, and he knew from birth that part of his role on Earth was to take care of his mother in her old age. That was his filial duty. Now, this young man trying to find his way in the world, he learned American table manners. He learned all sorts of things from the movies. When he went to see The Graduate, he was galvanized by it. He saw it again and again and again, and then he came home to his aged mother... By this point she was a widow and said, "Mom, I love you very much, but you know you can't live with me any longer." So he sent her to live with his sister, but uh, and then felt very guilty about it, but that's an unusual reaction, but it was just a sense of young people trying to carve out their own space however they could. So that's one reaction. Another person that I talked to for the book was a Catholic I don't understand the subtleties of this, but he wasn't a priest. He was a, a Catholic brother of the, the Brotherhood of La Salle. So, a celibate, serious Catholic guy, but a young Catholic at that time, one who was very much in tune with some of the changes they hoped were coming, and, and then were somewhat disappointed as the latest Pope didn't do some of the, the, the liberalizing things that they hoped for. So, this young Catholic brother was teaching in a suburb of Philadelphia where there were lots of other upper-middle-class Catholics. He went to see this movie, and to him it was all about religion because the scenes at the end in the church and the Dustin Hoffman character waving around that crucifix and you know, battling against the forces, and, and this fellow said that even the way he looked in his torn jacket and everything, he looked like St. Saint Peter, St. Saint Paul, you know, a, a crusading young, early Christian saint out there fighting off the Philistines. So people found what they wanted to find. That was an odd and curious thing about this movie. And you also talked to many people who were involved in the making of this movie, too. Not as many as I would have hoped, because some of them, a lot of them are gone. And some of them are tired of talking. And some of the ones who do talk tell the same stories again and again and again. But... One of the people that I did talk to, that I was lucky to talk to, was a man who's now 92 years old. His name is Lawrence Terman, and he was the producer of the film. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to say that age 92, he's running the Peter Stark Producing Program at the University of Southern California. He's, we should all be so healthy oh, at that age. Yeah. And He was a great font of information about the making of the film, the choices that were made, because he was the one who found an obscure novel, found someone who had never directed a movie before. That was Mike Nichols back then, and was involved every step of the way. So talking to him on on two different occasions was great. But I'll tell you one thing that's quite funny as far as I'm concerned— I learned a lot about memory in the course of the book. I had several sources of information. One was anything that was written in print. Of course, that's all secondhand. But I had Larry's archives at UCLA, and that was great. Nobody could fudge those there. They were things written on paper. So that was very helpful. And then, of course, you had the personal stories that I would elicit in conversations. And what I discovered is that after 50 years, people don't remember things exactly right, or in some cases, don't remember things at all. And I'll give you one example. In the course of going through those archives, I saw a lot of photographs that were taken on the set and around the set. And a whole series of photographs were taken of a couple of women wearing little frilly panties, and that's it, uh, sort of parading around on what looked like a rehearsal space— And a bunch of guys, all guys, sitting in folding chairs with gleams in their eyes and big smiles on their faces. So when I spoke to Larry the second time, I said, I've got to ask. uh, It's not really important for the book, but I've just got to ask, what's going on here? Why are these topless women parading around with all these men sitting in chairs and smiling? And uh, I said, was it a party? And he said, well, if it was a party, then nobody invited me. And I said, well, that may be, but let me show you some photographs. And so I showed him some photographs. And he said, because he's an honest guy, he said, yeah, that's me there. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, "Uh, well, I guess you were there. What was it? He had no idea. And he kept saying, well, what makes you think it was a social event? And I said, What else could it possibly have been? And I I ruled out some other things. It it wasn't an audition. It wasn't a this. It wasn't a that. What was it? And I don't care what kind of parties they had, but it was an education to me that something would be so completely blocked out.
0: Even when you have photographic evidence of it.
1: What are you working on now? You know, I don't know. I want to write about the film industry. That's my area. I want to write something about women so you're in search of i'm in search of and please think with thoughts excellent
0: we're working on it for you (laughs) and ourselves too and now here's beverly gray reading from seduced by mrs robinson how the graduates became the touchstone of a generation in front of an audience of bio conference attendees
1: there's this party a young man descends a staircase in a nouveau riche beverly hills home He's instantly accosted by a bevy of squealing suburbanites. Liquor is flowing, tongues are wagging. Everyone is keen to congratulate Benjamin Braddock on the honors he's racked up at an East Coast college. What's next for the prodigy? Out by the swimming pool, one no-bullshit businessman insists he's got the answer. Plastics. But there's also a woman with all-knowing dark eyes. She gives Ben the once-over, flicks her cigarette ash, and proposes a party of another sort. That's how this graduate comes to get a very different education in a film that plays off adulthood against youth, pragmatism against idealism, lust against love. The homecoming soiree is where it all begins, only to end when Benjamin turns wedding crasher and runs off with the bride, which puts a real damper on the wedding reception. The whole world showed up at that party. The Graduate was intended as a small, sexy comedy based on an obscure novel by a first-time author. But when it hit theaters in late 1967, moviegoers instantly took notice. Young people clapped and cheered. Their elders flocked to see what their offspring found so provocative. Soon intellectuals, clerics, and politicians were weighing in trying to use the graduate to understand those unruly post-World War II children who were coming of age in large numbers. And I was one of them. A baby boomer with a lot on my mind. When the graduate premiered, I was a college student at UCLA. Longing to broaden my horizons, I had cajoled my parents into letting me spend my junior year in Tokyo. But when I returned to the land of the smoggy palm, I re-entered the realm of my parents, Proud of my achievements, they hovered over me, intent on helping to shape my future. Did I really want to earn a PhD in English? Had I thought about law school? And shouldn't I focus on the possibility of getting married? No wonder the graduates struck a chord. Once I'd moved back into my pink childhood bedroom with a little sister too close for comfort, I paid rapt attention to the galvanizing movies coming to town, anything to get out of the house. The year 1967 turned out to be a high watermark for films that took a hard look at the nation of my birth. Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, with its exquisitely calibrated take on violence American style, seemed particularly timely. Nonetheless, I hardly saw myself as an heir to outlaws like Bonnie Parker and Clive Barrow. The graduate was another matter. That polite young high achiever, those loving but smothering parents, those comfortable but slightly bland surroundings. They formed an only slightly exaggerated version of my cozy West LA world. Yes, we even had a swimming pool. Hey, wasn't that
0: me up there on the screen? That was an excerpt from Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, How the Graduate Became the Touchstone of a Generation, read by author Beverly Gray on May 18, 2018, during BIO's annual conference. Earlier, you heard my conversation with Beverly Gray, recorded on May 19, 2018, at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy your day.